at the conclusion of our study on the incarnation of Christ. And much like the first part, we're going to do a lot of flipping. This is, this is a subject matter in which we need to be sure that we're sure that we're sure. And there are a lot of things that come out of this truth. The incarnation of Christ, part two, or in what sense was the word of God made flesh? When we use the phrase, the word of God made flesh, or we say that he became partaker of flesh and blood, came in the blood, or that he was manifest in the flesh, it's an expression of his incarnation. So every time we see a phrase similar to that, the truths that we've discussed in the previous lesson as well as this one are unseparated from that subject matter. Whatever this is brought up, it is directly brought up to connect our minds to this truth. And it will usually establish the reasons for it, the principles that come out of it, or uh, our unfitness, honestly, uh, to have done it on our own. So turn first and foremost to John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 10 through 14. John chapter 1, which we use in the first part as a paramount chapter to who John was, also establishes firmly for us who Christ was. And we proved last time John to be a trustworthy writer. So we can trust what we're about to read in verses 10 through 14. He writes here of Jesus, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, there's that phrase, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the purpose here, in John chapter 1, verses 10 through 14, of the phrase, the word was made flesh, was to prove that he dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, to illustrate the intentionality of his coming, but also the purpose of his being here. Now turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. And again, if you struggle with the turning back and forth, just listen intently, uh, as these are very important things. But I encourage you, if you can, if you have a Bible, to try and find these things, because these are truths that you can't just call the pastor to come stand for you on. Uh, if, if what we talked about last Sunday with Brother Thorne's uh, lesson and Brother Charlie's lesson of the end uh, being so very close, then we should be mindful of the fact that it's to be written on your heart. We don't gather to perfect its writing on mine. So let's make sure we understand where these things can be found. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, we read this, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who, brought, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And we saw a lot of that in the message we just talked about. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. So we see here, that phrase is right out of the gate in verse 14, and we see it's the conquering of death, the making of reconciliation for the sins of God's people, to act as a qualified high priest in the pertaining of sacrificing himself. 
We see a lot of things laid out for us here. And he says in this text that he took on him the seed of Abraham. So since we're studying that out in Genesis, up to where we are now with Joseph, we can track it back to Abraham. I've already told you that Pharez is, is the relation in which it comes from um, of Judah, Judah from Jacob, Jacob from Isaac, and Isaac from Abraham. And this is the seed thus far in our tracking on Wednesday nights of the promised seed. This is thus far the lineage of Christ. So we see here the part that he took upon himself. Turn now to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And that very first verse is exactly why in the first part of this study we prove John to be an adequate and trustworthy writer. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. There's that phrase. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. So let's stop right there. The truth of His incarnation is so important that it is present in the fruit of believers. That's what we see in 1 John chapter 4. It is such an important truth that Christ was manifest in the flesh that flesh that He was both 100% God and 100% man that it is evident in the fruit of believers and it is not evident in the fruit of non-believers. Which it goes on to say, And every spirit that confesseth not of Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of what? Antichrist. Whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Now what is John talking about? Because aren't we waiting for the beast? And aren't we waiting for the Antichrist? Beloved, the spirit of Antichrist has been around for a long time. The Antichrist, what is foretold, what is coming, is the spirit kind of coming into fruition into a manifested body itself, into a person, into something in which we can all identify based on Scripture. But the spirit of anti-Christian, of anti-Christ, much like anti-Semitism that we see right now in America, is already here and was here in John's day. This is before Patmos. This was here in John's... Uh, during his ministry, the Apostle John's ministry, before he was isolated, maybe before or after he was boiled, I'd have to check on, the, on his history for that, but he was boiled alive. The intent of man was to kill John as well. And he's already said that those that have done those things exhibit that very spirit. Then he says, ye are of God. And that phrase, little children, don't be bewildered by this. We talked about it before. New believer, young believer, Ye are of God, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world. The world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I know it sounds a bit of a, of a riddle here, but remember where it started. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And it is evident in the proof of, uh, of in the fruit of the believer. And it is not there, it is not present in the fruit of the non-believer. This signifies that Jesus, who truly is God, really became man or assumed the whole human nature into union with his divine person. He could not have been only God and have perished at all. He could not have been only man, for he would not have been able to conquer death. 
He would not have been able to resurrect himself as only man. So there's just two points. What is meant by the flesh and what is meant by being made flesh? First, what is meant by the flesh? This term refers to a whole individual of human nature consisting of soul and body. It's not merely this stuff, the stuff that mankind has fought about the color of since the beginning. It's not about this. It is about human nature itself. John Gill wrote, in this, sense, in this sense, we are to understand in relation to the incarnation of Christ that he took upon him the whole nature of man. He assumed a true body and a reasonable soul, being in all things made like unto his brethren, so his flesh signifies his human nature as distinct from the spirit which is his divine nature. So spirit equals divine nature. I like to break these things down. And flesh equals human nature. We see evidence of this, spirit equaling divine nature, in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Romans chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 says, Concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. And we see proof of flesh equaling human nature in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. God, just being God, would not suffer at all. But 100% God and 100% man, he was literally made able to suffer for the elect of God. Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. If Jesus was 100% man only, in a sense coming from Joseph or some other man's seed, he would have also inherited our complete fallen nature and the inability to conquer anything, because he'd have to conquer his own sinful nature first. But that's not who Jesus is. We say that he assumed a reasonable soul. This is how John Gill phrased it, a reasonable soul, because that is part of human nature, body and soul. Had he not a human soul, he would not be a perfect man and could not be called the man Christ Jesus. The integral parts of a man are soul and body. Without one or the other, he would not be a man. Angels, for example, are immaterial and immortal spirits, yet they are incorporeal. They have uh, descriptions, they have um, what we would say qualities that are similar to Christ, but they're incorporeal. Can you punish an angel, a, man, a, a messenger? Can you put to death an angel? No, by their very definition, we can't. Consider animals. It's not just flesh and blood that's required. Animals have bodies, but they lack a rational and immortal soul. Uh-oh, in 2023, the pastor's about to get letters. You're not going to see Fido in heaven. Hear it. It's scripture. The cows were not made above Adam and named Adam and called Adam into, uh, into order and taught Adam and led Adam and cared for Adam. Adam was. Adam was made in the likeness of God. Does a dog resemble us? If it doesn't resemble us, it doesn't resemble him. I've gotten in more trouble reminding folks what Scripture says about animals than any other doctrine in this Bible. I know you want to see Fido again, but you won't. There's a very special design to mankind that is not shared with animals. 
This is going to rile some of you up. So I encourage you to come with open Bibles when you want to talk about it. Prove it. Prove it to yourself. Okay, we love our dog. Well, they love our dog. I don't necessarily love our dog as much as they do. But when Ezra passes, we won't see him again. We shouldn't long to get to the kingdom of heaven to see Fido. The longing to get to the heaven isn't to see my grandparents either. It's to see God. It's to see the one I worship and that I follow and that I serve. And seeing them makes heaven sweeter, as the song says. But the longing for the kingdom is to not be with another man or another woman or an animal or even Michael or some other angel or messenger. It's to be in the presence of God the Father. The truth of animals not having a rational and immortal soul is something that Satan has attacked for years. And he's winning. The reason I think a lot of folks now of these younger generations have comfort animals, not that an animal cannot be of comfort, but I think the reason it's so out of control now is because man does not comfort men. We don't comfort one another. We, we've talked at length about forgiveness and love. We don't do those things for one another. Jesus had a human will that was distinct from the divine will, though not opposite. It was in subjection to it. Let me say it again. He had a human will that was distinct and divine, but it was not opposite. It was in subjection to it. John chapter 6, verse 38, he says, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Luke 22, 42, Father, if thou, will, uh, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. If... Jesus was incapable of being in subjection to this, to this divine will. Then why would he have ever been given a human will? Why would we even have so many verses that talk about following the Father's will above his own if he didn't also have his own? He had a human will that was in subjection to a divine will. You know what the commandment for us is? Put off the old man, put on the new man. We are also to be in subject to the divine will. It's a very different process for us, and we'll get to that in the coming weeks. But for Christ Jesus, He's role modeling for us the fact that we are not to live by bread alone, but every word of God. Jesus' human soul is evident from His having a human understanding, will, and affections. He had a human understanding, knowledge, and wisdom in which He is said to grow and in which some things were deficient and imperfect in time. Don't miss those last two words. I've had ugly conversations with folks about this too. Jesus is perfect and he knew all things at all times. Listen, beloved, I'm going to give you a few. There's more. In time, he did not always have a perfect understanding of everything. A way better understanding than us. But there are times in which scripture says he was learning. And he was being perfected. Listen to this. Luke 1.80, the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Could he have increased if he was already maxed out? Mark 13, verses 30 through 32. Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day... And that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, talking of himself, but the Father. 
I am not saying Jesus did not know anything. But I am telling you that in time, as he was 100% man and 100% God, he was made a perfect example for us. He was, this is not a perfect example. The teacher asked a question. And being a perfect example, Jesus gives all the right answers because he's got a cheat sheet. Well, what's he modeling? Do you have a cheat sheet? Do I have a cheat sheet? No, I only have Jesus. And Jesus spent time in the desert to be perfected. You know what else he did? When his family and the caravan departed, he stayed back in the temple, did he not? And he asked questions. And yes, he did answer questions too, but he asked questions. You see, he was modeling for us that we can what? Ask, seek, knock. He is always modeling throughout his entire ministry. You want to have these things? Ask these things. You have not because you ask not. You ask amiss. You expect to just have. That's what the Israelites did. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes did. And then they made it impossible for anybody else to have it. And Jesus says, I am the model for you. Die unto yourself. Bear your cross and follow me. Was Jesus given all things? We know in the Great Commission, all power in heaven and on earth was granted unto him. And we know based on Scripture that he is now at the right hand of the Father, where when Stephen was martyred, he was even standing at the right hand of the Father. He ascended exactly to where he was meant to ascend to. He accomplished all that the Father had called for him according to his will to accomplish. But he did not come out of the wound with perfect understanding of the wind, which shows he had to learn at least something. So in time, in time, there were deficiencies. I hate that word because I know that'll be what riles everybody up. But understand, he could not have increased in wisdom if he already had all wisdom. That's true. And as a triumphant God, he does have all these things. But he willingly took the cross. He willingly came here for that ministry. He willingly came here for the sacrifice. And he willingly also committed himself to having to learn all things that were required of him to learn that he didn't already have to accomplish the purposes of the ministry the Lord called him unto. Jesus was born and brought into the world physically as other men. We read these things in text. He grew and increased. He ate and he drank. He experienced weariness and fatigue. He slept in the ship with the disciples. He was seen. He was heard. He was handled. He was buffeted. He was scourged. He was bruised. He was wounded and crucified by men. If he's not at all man, then they did nothing to him on that cross. His body, after death, was laid in his tomb. A borrowed tomb. He was seen after this by the disciples who once again handled him. And what did they find present on his person? It was a resurrected body, was it not? He bore the marks of the sacrifice. His body... From, from, from John 1 all the way through, bore the marks of a man in an earthly ministry. But his accomplishments brought about by his godliness, his 100% being God, made all of those actions that had been committed under the will of the Father way more powerful than what anything a man could do. We see in the Gospel accounts that Jesus had human affections such as love and joy, sorrow and grief. We saw just about all of that in John 11 already today. 
amazement and consternation. Consider Mark 10, verse 21. Jesus, then Jesus beholding him, loved him and said unto him, one thing thou lackest. Is this the apostle John? It's got to be Simon Peter, right? No, this was a certain rich man that came unto Jesus inquiring how it is he might have everlasting life. And he beheld him and loved him. And he instructs him, sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor that thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. John 13, verse 23. Now we see John. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. We read in John 11, he had a great love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mark 3, verses 4 through 5, he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil? It's a very different situation, but listen to the emotion. To save life or to kill, is that illegal? But they held their peace. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand restored whole as the other. Praise the Lord that he himself was meek, power under control. Could you imagine if Jesus looking around about him in anger was not also meek? Boy, I, it wouldn't have taken a word, would it? Looking around about him in anger, all mankind snuffed out of existence. The earth stops spinning. All creation disappears. Sun doesn't have to explode. It just stops. Remember, light be, light was. Jesus doesn't have to make the sun blow up. He just has to tell it to stop. He literally, in his anger, if he was out of control, if he was unmeek, if you'll allow me to make up the phrase, he could have handled his anger like we do and ended it all. But this 100% God experiencing 100% man emotions also exhibited 100% godly ensample. We see that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are. Hebrews 4.15 All that Satan offered him were intended for, the, uh, for one with body and soul. Think about those three things. and that, Those are just three things we know of. But he was tempted for a long time. Who knows what else the, the devil offered him. But in those three things that Jesus told us about, because his disciples weren't there for any of that, it all would have pleased body and soul. To be a perfect sacrifice for the elect of God, Jesus had to be both body and soul. So now, secondly and lastly, what is meant by being made flesh? Understand, first and foremost, that God is immutable and therefore could not be made or altered in His divine nature or person of Christ. I know we're getting a little deep into theology here, but you can follow me on this. Jesus was as much a divine person before His incarnation as he has been since and ever will be. He gave up nothing of his divinity to accomplish the will of the Father. Therefore, we must conclude that the union of the human nature to the divine nature is to as a subsisting or maintained by itself in the person of the Son of God. We know that he was comforted by the Holy Spirit. We read that last time. I think it's the beginning of John 4. Let's go there just to be sure. We're out our Bibles. That's what they're there for. Nope, John 4 is Samaria. Let's 
We understand where he was tempted of the devil, and I'll find that for you, and we'll talk about it next time. Uh, we see the comfort of the Holy Spirit coming upon him. We understand that he had access to his divinity to retaliate against the devil, to handle the devil. But the, the Bible, and Isaac and I were just talking about this this morning, the, those that know the devil better than we do, I think it's Michael and Jude, Jesus here, of course, they handle the devil, God in the book of Job, they handle the devil in a very interesting way. What would we like to do with the devil? We'd like to be the devil to the devil, wouldn't we? Choke him down, smack him around, thank him for all the special things he's put us through. We'd like to do that, but we're the ones that give in to sin. And we don't read in Jude where the angel says, I will have my revenge on the devil. What's he say? That is up to God. God, the great avenger, is going to handle the devil. How does God handle the devil in Job? Have you considered my faithful servant Job? The devil has a purpose. And God permits his purpose to be exercised. This was way bigger than simple revenge. Way bigger than Marvel comic books and DC comic books and all those things. There's a longer game being played out in all of these events. And it is very clear through Scripture that God will be the one who handles <coughs> Satan. We see God, the Word or Son, made and became manifest in the flesh. The Son was in the bosom of the Father from all eternity, was manifested in the flesh in time to the sons of men to take away sin and destroy the works of the devil. We must understand that the divine nature and human nature did not mix together. They didn't make a third nature. Jesus was 100% both. 100% man, 100% God. And somebody in the back says, that's 200% preacher. Good job. He's 100% both. Not a third thing. And not now a 50-50 thing. He's 100% both. The union of natures is such that they are closely united and not divided, they still retain their distinct properties and operations, but one is slave to the other. The divine nature, it still remains uncreated, it still remains infinite, and it still remains omnipresent. The human nature, we see it through Scripture. This human nature is created. This human nature is finite. We see that he's born, we see that he dies. And in some certain places, until the resurrection, he remains dead. Until the divine nature for which the human nature answered to brings him back to life, conquers death. And the divine nature was also involved in the giving up of life. The divine nature had to sign off on that, which is why we say when he cries out, it is finished, that he gave up the ghost. The divine nature could have sustained that human nature as long as it willed to. But the divine nature followed the plan of God the Father and gave up the ghost and allowed for death Exactly on schedule. We must then understand that the incarnation did not uh, make for there to be a God in the flesh, two natures in one. The divine nature assumed the human nature forming a union, and it's not the other way around. How many are thankful this isn't an after-lunch message? I just want to go ahead and break it up a little bit for you. I understand. This is not just, understanding these things is not just the burden of the pastor. It's the burden of every man entrusted to lead his home to understand how Christ did what he did to the best of our ability. It's a great mystery. But you know, when, when little Timmy asks you about Jesus, you're not going to get to just drag me over for supper and explain it away. 
He's not just asking you for the answer of Jesus. He's asking to see what Daddy knows about Jesus. Take these things very seriously. And on that point, prove them. Don't just take my word for it. Prove them. Colossians 2.9, For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Not in type, but in actuality and in substance. In Jesus dwelled all of the Godhead bodily. Again, the, the divine nature had to allow for the human nature to expire. The divine nature had to call back life unto this person of Jesus. He had to allow for all of these things to take place. If they were separate in persons, then what the flesh did could not be ascribed to that which the divine had accomplished, and vice versa. Suffering and dying, as we said in the opening, could not have been possible for the divine. God Himself is in the person, but God Himself by Himself did not go to the cross and die for all the elect of God. That would have just been God. And He can't die. He can't be extinguished. And He didn't take any part of us with Him. It would just be God Himself. But God taking flesh with Him, 100% God, 100% man, has now accomplished something because He put to death that which would, was, was set to expire, that which was to die. Praise the Lord that this union is indissoluble. Death dissolved the union between body and soul, but not between human nature and the person of Christ. When He resurrected, He brought it back with Him. It makes sense. The divine nature had to give permission for the human nature to perish, and the divine nature then can drag the human nature right back with it. Because the divine nature had control of all things. The human nature was enslaved or a servant of the divine nature that it was indwelled with. Resurrection certainly could not have been possible for the flesh. If Jesus was just 100% man and went to the cross and died, we all would be very disappointed today. There would be no resurrection. We'd all still be waiting outside the tomb. Is He really in there? Did He really come? Did He really perish? Was He really God? And oh, by the way, He would have really screamed. He would have suffered. It's hard to, to think about what we would refer to as Passion Week or whatever and think about the suffering because he is a lamb for the slaughter. did not speak against anything that he went through. He went through it willingly with his mind on the will of the Father. And he committed everything to it. The entire ministry was committed to what took place there. But if that were any one of us, not only would we have been extremely unfaithful to go through any of those things, but brother, brother Neil, could you imagine how we would have cried on that cross? For whatever time we would have had, could you imagine? Could you imagine showing grace to a mail factor in that hour? The babbling beside Jesus as he went on the cross? I imagine both of us would have said, Shut up! This is miserable! This is awful! And not Christ Jesus. Even that in that hour gave hope. The flesh in itself could not... Uh, the flesh in itself, rather, could only accomplish that which would have been specific or peculiar to the person, while the deliverance of the elect of God required a common salvation, which we see in verse 3 of Jude. What does all that mean? A lot of big words. That means that if David went to the cross and said, I'm going there to die for Joe Sitters, we'd all have a great laugh, because he could only do for himself what he's doing on that cross. He killed himself on that cross. He couldn't do anything for me. Only accomplishment that a man can possibly obtain through death 
is peculiar to himself. It cannot be put upon. I'm trying not to use other words we haven't defined yet. It cannot be put upon or accomplished for anyone outside of his person. Because he's 100% man. But this common salvation, this act of doing for all through the one, required divine nature. In consequence of this union, Jesus raised up the temple of His body on the third day, thereby declaring Himself to be the Son of God with power. John 2.19, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple. He told them way back in John 2. you believe that? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they're all confused. What's He talking about? You talking about the temple? Romans chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship, for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. Again, just like we saw in the beginning of this lesson, we see the phrase, made of the seed of David, manifested in the flesh, incarnation, and then we see its expressed purpose. The granting of grace and apostleship. The granting for others to follow and do likewise. Not to go to a cross and die, but what is the commandment of a disciple? To die unto oneself and take up thy cross and follow him. He's our example. Remember, all of this was done to make possible the salvation of the lost elect of God. All of this for our redemption. Very similarly to what we read in John 11 when Jesus said, Lazarus is dead, and then He says, I am glad. He follows it up, thankfully, with the fact that He was glad that this happened and He wasn't there because they were with Him. And as disciples, as followers, they were coming with Him and they were going to bear witness to this miracle. Lazarus, come forth! And they were going to see a dead man come out. And again, I don't know if he levitated or hopped, but we see that he is still wrapped as a dead man, still wearing the dead man uniform with the ID card and the mask about his face to gather up the fluids that would ooze from his pores. Lazarus was dead! But Jesus illustrates for the church in John 11 that which shall soon be accomplished for all the elect of God. When He cries out, it is finished. He cries out above the noise of our doubts and fears. Above the noise of the stopped ears. For those who have truly heard the gospel that truly know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, when He says it is finished, it is as a sigh of relief for our souls. It is not some 401k that can be lost by man. It's not some pension that can be spent up, burned up, and used up. It is eternal joy, eternal peace. And as an account it can be drawn from right now, beloved, we can be happy in Christ. A joy unspeakable. A peace beyond all explanation. And we have access to it right now. Because He was manifest in the flesh. He was manifest in the real. In the tangible. Remember last lesson when we were... Uh, part of that lesson was proving John to be an, a, a trustworthy author, a writer. And what did he say? What did he say? I beheld Him. We beheld Him. 
in all His glory. And John specifically, I held Him. Can you come up? I just want to illustrate something real quick. How well did the Apostle John know Jesus? John knew. This well. This is how well John the Apostle knew Jesus. How well did Mary say? How well did Mary, Martha's sister, Lazarus' sister, how well did she know Jesus? She sat at his feet. How well did Martha know Jesus? Here's your supper, your napkin. She served good. She served fervently. Do we even begin to know Jesus like these characters did? John, who's telling us about who Jesus is and about His manifestation, he began with, I beheld Him. Yes, in all His glory, we beheld Him. We witnessed, we saw Him, we touched Him, we felt Him, we cried with Him, we hurt with Him. They went in and, and the threat of being stoned in John 11, we feared with Him that we might be stoned to death. But Timothy, or Timothy, Thomas says, let's go. Let us go and be where He is. Those disciples who are learning to follow had some of the toughest lessons in all the Gospel accounts. And then the church gets theirs in Luke 17. Don't you dare be the stick that triggers the snare for these. You have beheld me, he says. You have touched me. You have walked with me. You have served with me. Don't you dare be a trip hazard to them. He says there's snares about. John 16, John, John 16. Jesus says in verse 31, the same question we asked this morning from John 11. Do ye now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. That peace we just talked about. In the world ye shall have tribulation. The world is at enmity with God. It's in disagreement, a severe disagreement. That will, as Charlie said on Wednesday night, it will be dealt with. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And this is how he did it. He came here. He really did. He really came here and he hurt with the hurting. Restored sight, restored faith, comforted, stopped the bleeding for some, provided salve for others, healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law, turned water into wine at a wedding, which was all symbolic of the very wedding that we're all headed toward. Lord willing, Lord willing, Ephesians 1, chapter 3, or chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, and we'll close here. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We all know the remainder of this, and we're going to read it, but don't miss that part. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ.
If that was the only way we could have it, it's pretty important that he was incarnated. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Paul, who wrote this, was a great missionary. He's also the chief of sinners. So whereas God is 100% man and 100% God, Paul is essentially 100% sinner, saved by grace. John. So was Lazarus. So am I. And if you're here and born again, so are you. Bear the cross. Die unto yourself and follow him. There is no other path to life. This do and live, Joseph says, for he feared the Lord. And I fear the Lord, and I tell you the same. This do and live. It is good for us to understand incarnation. And it's, an, it's important for us to understand a lot of these other big words that we'll get into. And, and I really want to look at the, the, the Lord's many roles, the roles of his divinity as a mediator and all these things. But that's not where salvation lies. It explains portions of how salvation works. <laughs> but where salvation lies is in the understanding that we have all inherited death. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, all that we could ever accomplish is death. There's nothing we could do to conquer it, and there's nothing we could do that would not earn it more, if that were possible. But for those who were his enemies, for those that were the fathers, Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. Believest thou this? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to preach and teach your word. And we are brokenhearted over the absence of so many of our brethren, Father, but we understand that you know their needs, and we understand that there are things that cannot be avoided. And we ask, Father, that you restore to health the thorns, that we might have them with us once again, that you give safe traveling mercies to the Hodges, that you be with our dear brother Jerry, and Father, if it's not your will for him to be there, that you just put it in our hearts to go get him. Be with our neighbors. We think of the one from down the road who came and was with us for quite some time, Father. We just pray, Lord, that you bring her back, that you put her on our hearts, that we go and check on her and see to her needs. Be with the cars, Father, as we've had such good fellowship with them as well. That, Lord, they might remember that we are here and that we preach and teach the truth and that we would be a blessing unto them. Be with our community, as we know that there's been a lot of conversation in our homeschool co-ops and things of that nature of folks looking for exactly what you have led for us to be. And we just ask, Father, that we be a lighthouse to this community, to this city at large. Help us, Father, to be a blessing to the Tulsa Boys Home. Be with our mission, Father, as Brother Jones is fiercely witnessing and handing out tracts and All for Grace by Charles Spurgeon, Father. We pray that you continue to bless that writing, bless his heart, bless the work there, Father. Prepare a man to take on that work as their pastor. We ask, Father, you be with the church in Caldwell and the many other churches that are without pastors, Father, that you would again prepare men. Men, Father, prepare men to stand in the gap, to shine forth the light and the way, and to prepare the path, Father, to point others towards you, to stand against angry mobs, angry communities, maybe even angry families, not to be confrontational, but to simply shine light on the truth that men hate light and love darkness. Help us, Father, 
to gain an understanding of Scripture, but more importantly, to, to gain a zeal, a lust, to know more, more, more about Jesus. We ask, Father, again, that you challenge each and every one of us over the next few weeks, Father, to increase our devotional time, our study with our family, our prayer time, our scriptural reading time for the days ahead. Maybe long, maybe cumbersome, maybe the final ones. Lord, we ask all these things, Father, again, that you forgive us for not having afternoon services, Father. Forgive us for having to cut the day short. Be with my parents, Lord, as they travel home tomorrow, Lord. Give them safe traveling mercies. Be with their hearts and minds along the way. We ask, Lord, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.